Okay, today we get to look at Alaska and the gold rush specifically that kind of brought a lot of Americans to this territory we'd only had for a, a few decades at the time. Yeah, it's a gold rush looking at the film The Gold Rush by Charlie Chaplin from, what was it, 1925, right? Yep. So what's funny is we always like to talk about our Oscars. This is one of the few films we've done on the list that predates the Oscars. So this film is a 100-93 on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, it's in the IMDb Top 250. But the Oscars weren't yet a thing. So I don't really know. This could have been a contender for Best Picture. But this was also a year we've talked about before because this is the same year as Battleship Potemkin. So a very strong year for, for films. And I think... Uh, and maybe it's because the version I watched was kind of an updated version, but it, to me, it, Gold Rush felt better than Battleship Potemkin. Like, just it felt like a newer movie. Like, just it almost felt like it was ten years newer, for, even though they both came out in 1925. And I don't know if that's a Russia versus U.S. thing or just the fact that I watched an updated, maybe retouched up version of the Gold Rush that was cleaned up. I, I really don't know. Yeah, and also there is. I mean, even though it is it is very clearly made in 1925, there is a certain not uh it's not timeless because like you can tell that it was made in the 20s but it's just oh my gosh what's the word i'm looking for quaint <laughs> no it's so influential oh, and yes. legendary in just in the history of film but so is battleship potemkin right but i'm saying like there are also and this is kind of a casablanca type type deal where there are things that you see in this movie where it's like, oh, I know that trope. And it's like, yeah, this is where that came from. Ah, yes. And there's it's more than one thing. So we we talked off air last time about the uh, him seeing the guy, you know, As transform yeah. into the giant chicken. Right. When they're when they're starving. Right. That's something that you see in cartoons all the time. Right. There was another moment where they're in the dance hall and he's standing there and he sees the girl at the bar and she turns around and smiles and waves and he kind of oh. smiles and she walks up to him and he walks out to to shake her hand and it, it she walks right past him to and because it turns him. out that she was smiling at the guy behind him the whole time that's a trope you've seen a billion times right swingers had a big you know did that in the 90s and it's like oh no that's i mean charlie chaplin was doing right. it 70 years before swingers yeah. that's a charlie chaplin thing from 1925 yeah right. it's crazy to think this movie is 98 years old right yeah insane uh, so I had seen it once before, and it kind of moved up in my estimation. Like, like not, I was watching it, like, I laughed out loud. Like, it's really good. It's, it, and it, I didn't think it feels slow. Like, Battleship Potemkin is good and important, but feels slow at times. This movie didn't feel that slow to me. Like, I was kind of engaged the whole time. They kind of shift gears often enough. You're kind of yeah. grinning. You're kind of wondering, how did they do this? Because, they, obviously, when all these movies are pre-special effects, you kind of start to see, because you haven't seen a ton of Chaplin movies, have you? Not a ton, no. Um, th it reminded me. This r reminded me a lot of the general because it yeah, was a yeah. it's a silent movie, but it's fun. It's funny. You're engaged. I wasn't bored. Right. It it, it flew by. I mean, it's only what an hour and fifteen minutes or something like yeah. that. It's not a long movie, but even that seemed to just fly by. Right. And the and the the, the effects are kind of cute at times. Like like okay, that's very obviously a little puppet hanging out the door of the of the model the house they yeah. built to hang off the cliff. But also, damn, that's clever for 1925. <laughs> oh yeah, and that, and that was even that was tense. Like the scene where, like, so basically, yeah, kind of one of the near the end scenes is the the house kind of blowing off. To, the storm of the night blows their whole cabin to the edge of a cliff, so it's hanging half out the cliff, and then they play with them inside, basically trying to figure out 
why does the whole house move and tilt when we walk on this side of the cabin versus the other side of the cabin? And then they show him, like, they, he slides out the door toward the cliff, and then they cut to the house on the cliff, and he's hanging off the doorknob, dangling under the cliff. Well, how do they do that? Oh, it's like, it's like a little two-inch puppet of a person just hanging off a little model house. And so it's very obviously a little puppet, but then they cut back to inside of him. It's, I don't know, it was kind of cute. But also, like, it's tense. Like, that ha- cabin hanging by one little knot in a rope in some rocks. Right. And the whole cabin up from going over. And then when it finally does go over, and they're, like, racing up the house and out the door. Like, it's kind of crazy. Like, this this movie's really good. Right. And the guy, uh, he's in there with Big Jim. And Big Jim is the first one to make it out. And then you're like, it like keeps sliding. You're like, oh, Big Jim, now's not the time to rest. You gotta, you gotta <laughs> rescue the lone prospector. He's still in there because oh, he finds his goal. He's like, hey, here's my goal. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. He he gets distracted because he got yeah. He he remembers where the goal is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, and it kind of I I don't know. It's just kind of clever how it kind of goes in these phases where first it is kind of the starvation phase, and then it's kind of the meeting the girl in the dance hall phase, and then he kind of ends up at the engineer's cabin who's out of town and he gets to kind of crash at that place. But then kind of all the different threads start to tie together. So like, you know, the bad guy from earlier and then the gold from earlier with Big Jim, it all kind of starts to then come together at the end and you need to help me find the gold from the beginning of the movie that you almost kind of thought that plot thread was, it almost feels a little like little mini anthology kind of things, but then it does all kind of come full circle and, and tie back in. Like it's actually a pretty solid script too. Oh yeah. Oh, and you feel, oh, the word I wrote down too is just, now, and this is kind of what is emblematic emblematic of Charlie Chaplin. And this one isn't as emotional as like, I think it's the kid. You're just like sobbing by the end of the kid. Like, it's just, it's unreal. And I haven't seen it forever either, but it's probably even better than this movie. But pathos, Charlie Chaplin, which is just the ability to evoke p- pity. And Charlie yeah. Chaplin's Tramp is like one of the ultimate all-time in film history at invoking pathos and pity from the audience and not in a he's pathetic way and just like a aw way and so like yeah him him with the girl who he has the crush on and she figures out that he has a crush on her and they kind of try to tease him about it and then when they accidentally stand him up for dinner on new year's eve and you're just right. like and then they find out about it and they look on her face when she's like I'm a crappy person. Like she, yeah. And then just like he, what he went through, and he's getting gifts for all of them or friends, and yeah, it's just sad and sweet, and yeah, yeah. Well done. Oh, speaking of iconic moments in film, in that scene, well, actually, two things about that. Number one, that scene to me felt a lot like the expectation versus reality scene from 500 days of summer yeah oh because they they envision he he envisions it yeah because right because while he's sitting there he's going it's like it goes through the scene of him you know giving all the gifts and he's you know entertaining them and they're like having a good time and then it's like laughing his joke he does the little oh the little dancing dancing with the bread feet that was brilliant well yeah i'm I'm getting to that okay sorry (laughs) (laughs) so (laughs) so that but then it turns out that that was all in his in yes. his mind the whole time. That was his expectation, and when it what turns out is he actually gets stood up. So that reminded me of that uh, the expectation versus reality scene, which is genius and and yes. also yes. kind of iconic. But that bread dance, the the little where he puts the dinner rolls on forks and holds them under his under his head, and he's like dancing with them like the, like he's a a little like like line dancing basically. Yeah. But with the but with the dinner rolls as his feet, and so it looks like a little cartoon character. Yeah. That see, I've seen that before. That exact clip from the Gold Rush. 
yeah, yeah, I just okay. never knew that that was from this movie. You know, I, that's like a, uh, a an iconic, like classic Charlie Chaplin, like fun visual gag is yes. him with the dinner rolls on the forks dancing like their little feet. And I just never knew that that was from this movie. And when I saw that happen, I was like, oh, that's this. That's from this. And there's a skill to that. Like, you couldn't just do that. Like, the rhythm is, like, very, very precise. Like, it's yeah. it's well, well done. Very, very skilled guy. And uh, I am kind of excited. So we will be talking about the film Chaplin. And we'll do a deep dive then about Charlie Chaplin and his life. Because yeah, he's important, so important for the history of cinema. But also as a real-life celebrity. And, and again... We'll talk about it again, but the one thing that stood out, stood out to me from the film Chaplin is how he was, and he, well, he did the movie The Great Dictator, of course, and how he was an outspoken opponent of Hitler at a time when that wasn't a popular opinion in the United States. A lot of people in the U.S., we've talked about it before, a lot of people in the U.S. were pro-Hitler before the atrocities came out. It was yeah. like, he's just trying to make Germany great again. What's the problem? And Charlie Chaplin in the 30s was like, y'all are crazy. This guy's a monster and you don't see it yet. And so he's kind of right. ahead of his time there. Yep. But again, of course, I think probably I think he he might have been another one of those guys that married someone like in their teens and stuff. And all the, all the problem. Oh, he yeah. Charlie Chaplin had all kinds of. Yeah. We'll talk about it <laughs> yeah, when we'll, we talk we'll, about we'll him. But later, there, yeah. There was a lot. Of, there was a lot of issues with Charlie Chaplin too. Nobody's perfect. History's complicated. That's right. There it is. We say it all the time. There it is. <laughs> okay. So splitting up our research today, Logan's going to talk specifically about the Klondike Gold Rush, which is what is this set is. This, this film is set very much within specifically the Klond- Klondike Gold Rush. I'm going to give a brief rundown of like Alaska itself, and then Logan do the deep dive there, and then we'll kind of clean up with a few other things. So again, obviously the whole Native American presence that we kind of gloss over, but try to make sure we mention uh, every time. The name Alaska is derived essentially from a Native word for mainland. The first... I say European, we'll say non-native presence, because I don't know if you count Russians as European. So the Russians were here first, as far as mm-hmm. out after the Native Americans. So in uh, 1741, the Russians sent a Danish man named Vitus Bering across mm. to explore on, on their behalf and try to figure out where Ru- Russia was very much at this time, with like, especially following Peter the Great a little bit before this, we're trying to model themselves more off of a European model and try to see themselves less of an Asian country and more of a European country. Part of that is entering this age of exploration and having territories outside of your country overseas. They send Bering across to explore past the Pacific. He ends up in Alaska, very, very rich resource area specifically. Now, again, this is pre, they don't care. They didn't find gold yet at this time. And petroleum wasn't a thing that really people were doing anything with or discovering at this time. It was all about the furs. So these wild animals in the wilderness of Alaska was very, very enticing. And there was a flood of Russian fur trappers in the 1740s, 1750s following uh, Bering's visit. Uh, and Bering actually died basically the same year he went over there on an island, possibly of scurvy or other uh, health-related issues. So he he did die over there, gets the strait and everything, <laughs> and the sea all named after him. So that's why we know that name. Where we did talk about the Russians in this area was kind of when we were talking about California, we mentioned Russian settlements as far south as California. The reason they had those was, so they have all these fur trappers, and they're, setting, they're getting this big economic benefit from the fur trade out of Alaska, selling everything. They're sending it back home and selling to Europe and all that. But it's hard to sustain the population of trappers with these winters being so darn cold 
and you try mm-hmm. to feed this population. So the reason they were in California was they were basically trying to migrate south and figure out where can we set up farms to supply food to our fur trapping industry up in Alaska. And so that's why there was those Russian sediments all the way down into California, basically just looking for farmland they could use to tie into all that. So then Russia sold Alaska to the U.S. 1867. We've talked about, you know, William Seward in the Lincoln episode. Big question is, why did they do it? Because a lot of people, obviously, in hindsight, consider that one of the worst real estate deals ever. They sold Alaska for $7.2 million, which is the equivalent to about $112 today. Or sorry, $112 million today. That's that right. $112 million. And that's and it's something like that's a bargain. It's like when you when you go by acre, it's like cents. It's like cents not even a dollar. Acre. Right, right. Yeah. Oh, here's the, yeah the the number. I don't know if I told you this. So like, I just went up there. So they were kind of one of the bragging Alaska things was so Minnesota is the land of ten thousand lakes. Guess mm-hmm. how many lakes in Alaska? I have no idea. Three million. Oh my god! And that's with a minimum a size. I think it has to be five acres. I think it has to be, you have to be at least five acres to be a lake. And so there's. Three million bodies of water of five acres or larger in Alaska. You know, that's something that maybe people don't think about is just how big Alaska is. Because like when you see it on the map, it's usually like in that little inset thing with Alaska and Hawaii. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. But like if you put Alaska on the United States, yeah, like it's huge. Right. Basically, the top if the tops of the Canadian border, the bottoms probably at the top of Texas. But then the bigger one is the southeast panhandle with like Juno. Yeah. Is in Florida, while the Aleutian Islands go all the way out to San Diego. Yeah. It's that big. It's massive. Right, right. It's also, this is a, a little uh, geography thing here, but it is simultaneously the westernmost and easternmost state because the Aleutian Islands actually stretch past the international dateline. The. The international, well, not the international dateline because that moves around Alaska, so oh. it's all in the same time, in the same time zone. Yeah. But the 180 degree parallel line of longitude, it goes past. Huh. Yeah. So That's it's funny. it's simultaneously the northernmost, the westernmost, and the easternmost um, state. <laughs> side note on your side note that reminds me <laughs> that uh, so it's Japan, Japan versus Korea. Japan is north of Korea, south of Korea, west of Korea, and east of Korea. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So the reason uh, Russia kind of needed to sell was they had just lost the Crimean War in the 1850s. So the too long don't read of of the Crimean War was Russia went to war with the Ottoman Empire over things we don't need to go into. And the Ottoman Empire was kind of waning. And Britain and France, this is a whole, this remember, 18, 1800s is the big balance and balance of power stuff. All the alliances right. we talk about that eventually lead to World War One, post-Napoleon, yep. all those kinds of things. So Britain and France were very, very scared of Russia getting too strong if they took over the Ottoman Empire. So they swoop in to join and help the Ottoman Empire fight off Russia and beat Russia. So Russia basically went broke fighting this war that they lost. And basically just needed the money. So then the question is, well, who do we sell to? Britain makes sense in some ways because it's like, well, Britain already owns like all of Canada right there. Just give them the rest there. But a couple of factors. Well, one, they just got done fighting a war against Britain and they didn't necessarily like the idea of this potential rival being right now on their doorstep with Siberia. Because like at the the narrow part of the Bering Strait there, Siberia to Alaska at the closest point is like 50 miles apart is all. 
Yeah. So they really didn't want to sell to uh, Britain. And also Britain also wasn't necessarily that interested because if you look at the map today, today still like from British Columbia, they have plenty of Pacific Coast access there. Right. And Canada's huge. They're like, we kind of don't need Alaska. We'd rather just keep our money. So Britain was kind of off the table for all those reasons. And the U.S. kind of just did did then make sense. We weren't a big power. We were kind of always looking to expand and get more land. Russia needed the money. They worked out a deal with Seward and made the deal happen. Just thinking about the that whole the deal with the Ottoman Empire and, the, and how the Brits and the French allied with the Ottoman Empire against the Russians in the middle of the 19th century, and then it just the, just the way that like. That stuff ebbs Power and flows. moves yeah. and shakes, right? Because then, in in like, uh, we had text a little bit about the Boxer Rebellion, and as part of that coalition, the Russians and the French and the Brits and the Americans were all part of that coalition against the Boxers in China. Right. So then they were all working together, and then you know, ten, twelve years after that is World War One, and now they're all on different sides again. Then you got the British and the French versus the Germans and the Ottomans, and then the Russians are a different thing. Right. And then China's on our side again World War Two with yeah. and then World War Two. Right. Yeah. yeah. So it's it's just it's all from the middle of the from the middle of the nineteenth century all the way through the twentieth century, just the, the way that power just moves and and flows and and alliances are made and broken and it's just well and and again they and they even talk about part of this sale was Russia wanting to be friends with us as we're now a rising power in in the world and Russians like hey all right we we Russians and Americans can be best friends forever <laughs> it's like right yeah well here little little buddy America have this have this Alaska oh you guys are so cute with your little <laughs> colonial ambitions right look at you guys go <laughs> <laughs> and then. The Cold War happens. Yeah, <laughs> and then the Cold War happens, yeah. Right. I mean, shoot, we're almost in second Cold War t- today with uh, U.S. versus Putin and all that. Yeah, it's kind of cr- kind of crazy, again, how the, all that stuff shifts. Wild. So, the, again, so the Crimean War was 1850s. They kind of had to stall out for a little bit. And, like, we were a little occupied when they were trying to sell in, like, 1861, 1862. We kind of had a distraction going on. <laughs> We had some stuff we were dealing with. <laughs> yeah. So so nothing happened there. But yeah, 1867 sale was agreed upon. We talked about the price there. And we talked about it initially when we talked about, about Seward. So obviously, initially, this was called Seward's Folly or Seward's Icebox. Like, I can't believe we wasted millions of dollars on a bunch of worthless wilderland. That's kind of, it's it's almost a Mrs. O- Mrs. O'Leary's cow thing. That's That's not the case. Overwhelmingly, everyone was for the sale. A few critics called it Seward's Folly, and that's what we remember. Historians today huh. are actually like confused, like, why does everyone think people thought Alaska was a mistake? They're like, the historians are basically like, go look at the newspapers from the 1860s. You'll find, yes, one or two editorials to talk about Seward's Folly. But most newspapers were either, hey, good deal, or, oh, this happened. Like, very, very, right. very few people were actually anti-buying Alaska. It's just kind of this... Yeah urban huh. urban myth that we just kind of <laughs> inherit you know it's the cleopatra getting bit by a snake to kill herself it's like that didn't happen but everyone thinks it happened. oh right it's almost right. like that but yes so that was 1867 we now have this new alaskan territory not really a lot of people going there because it is very harsh and you kind of just have the you know the wilderness stuff good for good for lumber good for furs yeah so that's all there we also talk about you know the Fur trade doesn't necessarily last once coonskin caps 
we came out of fashion well actually that's that's raccoons probably not raccoons in alaska anyway i think it's probably beavers mostly beavers yes that'd be yeah there you go but yes in the 1890s gold in them are hills is discovered and so that's about let's see so we're 40 years or plus 40 50 years after the california a little bit the colorado gold rushes and so now we have another new gold rush this is potentially an untapped opportunity for another big gold rush um, way later than all the others which is kind of crazy going up in alaska and seeing how new a lot of this stuff is i'm like you know here from in Cheney, Kansas, and like, oh, Cheney was already over a decade old when some of these Alaskan towns are founded as part of that right. gold rush. So yeah, so tell us about the kind of the Klondike gold rush here. Yeah, so the Klondike gold rush uh, was a gold rush of about 100,000 prospectors to the Klondike region of Yukon. So it was actually, technically, the gold rush was in, or the, the... Canada. It was in Canada, but like everyone had to go through Alaska to get there. So this is between 1896 and 1899, a fairly short-lived gold rush. Going back to, you know, for centuries, the indigenous people there knew that there was copper and, and that gold was known to be there. They just didn't consider it to be that valuable. Uh. So they weren't, you know, they weren't, uh, you know, mining it. They weren't, it, it wasn't like a, when you think of like some of the South American Native societies right. where like gold was a big deal. It, it just wasn't a big deal up there. They didn't really have a use for it. So I, I just think that that's kind of like a funny thing of like thinking of the indigenous people. They're like, you know, a European guy shows up and he's like, oh my God, there's gold here. They're like, uh, yeah, like, but who cares? You, like, <laughs> you, you guys like the shiny rock? Okay. They're like, yeah, we, we know. And also, but yeah, like, what do you, what do you use it for? You can't eat it. You right. Know? It doesn't burn. Like, what are you going to do with it? It's too soft to make weapons out of. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So, Copper and gold were both known to be present in the region by um, indigenous people who live there. The Russians, when they first got there, they actually ignored the rumors of gold because fur trading was just easier and actually made them more money. Hmm. So, again, they had heard, you know, oh, there's gold up here. And they're like, yeah, but there's also a lot of animals and they're like way easier to get. They're already <laughs> above the ground. <laughs> so the gold rush started um, when gold was discovered in the Bonanza Creek in August of 1896 by an American prospector named George Carmack. He had a native wife named Kate Carmack, whose native name I'm probably going to butcher is Shah Tia'a. Her brother, native name is Kish. Uh, he was known as Skookum Jim. And their nephew, Ka'a Gooks, whose anglicized name is Dawson Charlie. So the four of them are on a prospecting mission. They discover gold in the Bonanza Creek. And it's not known who exactly among them actually discovered the gold but they all agreed to let george carmack the white american guy put his name down as i'm the guy who discovered it because they were worried that if they put somebody else's name on there that uh it would be considered an indigenous claim it would actually just be ignored oh right they'll steal it from the natives but the white guy okay we got to pay attention to his claim right right wow so the word eventually reached the U.S. mainland and Canada, and people began to flood in. Several routes to the region existed, including one that was only by water. They called it the all-water route. Only a few dozen people actually went that way, though, because it was really, really long and hard to do. Um, and it was frozen over for a lot of the year. Uh, there was also a route called the All-Canada Route that was apparently popular with Brits and Canadians because they didn't have to go through Alaska, meaning they didn't have to go through U.S or Canadian customs. 
mm. like border checkpoints. Because the Canadians actually had a rule that if you were going into the Yukon, you had to take a year's worth of food with you. Yes. Which is crazy. Right. So, and which is like hundreds of pounds, like thousands of pounds of food that you would have to carry with you, like buy either with a, a pack animal or on a sled. And so a lot of people were like taking it in in chunks. But, you know, the government's like mandating that you have to take a year's worth of supply of food if you're going into the Yukon. And so it was like this massive like slow down for people that were trying to get in and i took a so out of skagway i took the train they kind of followed that pass and like as we're on that train they're kind of telling us about that and like can't basically hey if you look out the window you can see a few remnants left of here's that trail like you can kind of see where it's a little worn away that's that trail those guys were taking on the exact thing thing you were talking about before the railroad went through and they, they right. had pictures of these because again this was late 1800s so there's photographs of these guys doing doing that and uh yeah, it's kind of crazy. Yeah, so the two most popular routes went through kind of up the coast from Seattle through Skagway, which you you went to on your yeah. um, Alaska trip. Is that is that where you did the uh, the gold panning that you were talking about in the Buster Scruggs episode? Was that in Skagway? No, that was actually Fairbanks. That was actually after. Okay, okay. Anyways, so just north of Skagway, um, there were two popular trails the White Pass Trail, and then the one that they actually mention in the movie is the Chilkut Trail, or Chilkut Pass Trail. These are both passes through the mountains, and they were kind of the the last big obstacle before you got into the Yukon Territory, could then go to the Klondike region to prospect for gold. Interestingly, the Chilkut Pass Trail kind of became its own little, like, gold nugget. So there were entrepreneurs that would find different ways to kind of get their own piece of the action one guy carved a bunch of steps into the trail because it was you know initially was just kind of a trail that went up a mountain he carved a bunch of steps and then charged people money if they wanted to use the stairs it's like 1500 stairs that he carved in the mountain there was also several trams that were set up to where you could kind of you could you know you don't have to drag your sled up the mountain you can hook it up to this tram and a horse turns a wheel at the bottom of the mountain, and there's a wheel at the top, there's a rope, and you just hook it up and it drags your sled up the mountain. And it was, they would charge money uh, by the pound. And then eventually, like several of these trams got set up. And some of them uh, were used steam power engines. But that was just, again, another way that people were making money off of this gold rush. Boomtowns such as Dawson City sprang up along the Yukon River and the Klondike River. A bunch of prospectors lived in these towns. And they would blow their money in the saloons and the dance halls, um, kind of living large. Although being made of wood and also being kind of gross meant that fires and disease were big problems in these towns. Mm. Um, but, you know, the population like skyrocketed. It said before the gold rush, it was like 500 people lived in Dawson City. And by the end of it, it was over 30,000 oh, in wow. population. But then today it's probably about gone, right? Like yeah, you know, yeah, because after the gold rush, these towns these yeah, towns died out. Because yeah. you know, if, if you're not making money, why would you? Why would you live there? So beginning in 1898, the media kind of began to lose interest in the gold rush, and so it started to fall out of the headlines. And then at that same time, uh, the Spanish American War started, which again dominated the headlines. So the Klondike gold rush kind of fell out of popularity, fell out of the media. And the number of prospectors actually going to Klondike just plummeted. And as a matter of fact, the the phrase, oh, go to Klondike, 
was like a oh go to hell like a dismissive a dismissive term Around the same time, gold was also discovered in Nome, Alaska, which is farther west. And so a lot of people just said, oh, well, you know, Klondike, that's old news. I'm just going to go to Nome. Um, And so then the the gold rush died out in about in 1899. Gold production didn't actually peak in Klondike until 1903 with the arrival of heavy industrialized mining equipment. But it quickly fell off after that. It's been mined off and on throughout the years, but today the region's economy is based mostly on tourism, both for the history of the gold rush era and also its natural beauty, as you well know, because you just you just went there this summer. Yes, yes. Okay, yeah. So yeah, so the, so the film is set very much Charlie Chaplin's character, which I don't think he's actually credited as as the tramp or uh, tramp. He's just gold prospector right like it's just the, yeah the loan the loan prospector i think is what he's what he's called in the movie right so it's it's i almost feel like when they talk about the tramp it's almost just like i don't know if it's after the fact necessarily but it's like hey he's playing a bunch of these unnamed characters like his character doesn't actually have a name like john like he actually doesn't have a name and which is kind of fun but so i think they just kind of decided hey maybe these are just all the same guy or versions of the same guy that we just call the tramp right and we even kind of see him going through that initial pass and everything and uh you can see why they would want them to bring this food because these harsh winters, like you're all going to starve to death if you don't bring this year's worth of food with you. Yeah. Which is then why we see the starvation thing. So what we had read online was that his inspiration was, of course, the gold rush. But then also he was kind of inspired by the, the Donner Party story, which is why they include this starvation and the threat of cannibalism uh, at the beginning scene where basically like his the guy he's in the cabin with even does start going crazy and wants to eat. Charlie Charlie Chaplin like he goes after him yeah and basically they luck out and a bear stumbles into the cabin they kill the bear and then they just kind of like that got him through the winter or whatever and then they kind of show cut to them leaving and they're all they're all fine um another kind of iconic thing from that is uh before they get to that, that point when they're eating the boot yeah that's one it feels kind of iconic and then two is like it looks like they're making it funny, but I'm also just getting depressed. And I'm th- you're and also just thinking like, well, shoot, if these are leather boots, like, is that actually organic material you could eat in a pinch? And they're just straight up eating his boots. And- there are uh, there are stories throughout history. Um, I think probably the most famous one, or at least the, the most well-known one to me, is of soldiers at Valley Forge uh-huh. in the American Revolutionary yes, War. Yes. During that winter, it was a very harsh winter at Valley Forge. They ran out of food, and there were multiple accounts of soldiers that would boil and then eat their own shoes. Yeah, so so it can sustain you. Right, right. Probably not so much now, but back when they were actually leather, leather boots. Right? Well, and and it's like, a, it's like a twofold thing. So one was it's just something to eat, even if your body can't process Uh-oh. or digest it, or even uh-huh. if, you know... Even if it's not, uh, you're not getting any nutrients out of it, it, it is it, it's at least something that you can chew on and eat. But also, I had, I've heard or read before that it wasn't always necessarily, that they, like, in, in the movie, we see them, like, they boil the shoe, and then they're literally, like, taking bites out of the shoe. Right. Apparently, there was a thing where you could just, you would put a bunch of boots in boiling water, and you it drink would... drink the broth? Yeah, basically, like, make a broth out of shoe leather okay. and it would boil some of this i i don't know if it's like collagen or some kind of material out of the leather itself huh. that would be just like it'd be like just slightly thicker than water probably didn't taste great right but it was like something that it had more than zero calories 
And so they would wow. They would eat or or drink that. And then of course, since Chaplin is, I mean, he's first and foremost like it's a his he does comedy. So then it's like having the shoelaces off to the side that he's basically treating like noodles and twirling yeah. them on the fork and like slurping yeah. up the shoelaces. And he has the he has the shoe split up so it's like the the top of the shoe and then the sole with all the nails sticking out. Yes. He puts the top of the shoe in front of him and gives Big Jim the the sole the nails. And Big Jim yeah looks at it and switches the two plates. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then he just doesn't even argue. <laughs> You just kind of has to eat it around the nail, or the the nails end up almost like the bones on the plate after you've eaten right. the shoe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So just uh, real briefly on the on the Donner Party, we we kind of we did address it very very briefly when we were talking about the Revenant because Jim Bridger, who is the young guy in the Revenant, also then was out west and had a Fort Bridger where people stopped through, including the ill-fated Donner Party had stopped through Fort Bridger on their way before they kind of took uh, the shortcut that ended up being bad news for them. So this is kind of retreating back. This is back 1846, well before where yeah. we're or well, yeah, well before where we're at now, but we didn't necessarily mention it back then. So I was going to give kind of a, the quick rundown there. So yeah, it was back to the, the wagon train days that we talked about with, for those few decades there, kind of centered right on the 1840s, the Oregon Trail and all that. So yeah, it is kind of this weird thing where this touted shortcut it was called the Hastings Cutoff. Hastings himself never made it the whole way. He had kind of made the like the first little parts of it and put some trailheads up. But it's almost like they were they were trying to get people to just figure it out, and they kind of just hoped it would work. And they were like basically trying to get people to go as guinea pigs. And we talked about Bridger vouching for it. Uh, one of the videos I was watching saying like Bridger might even had an ulterior motive to vouch for it, even though he didn't really know it would work either. But it, and not like malicious but like oh if it does work that means that many more people are going to come through our fort and buy goods from us so yeah why don't you guys go ahead and take it let us know how it goes but like told him oh yeah it'll work it's a good trail yeah all just lies basically my understanding is yes that was harsh yes they were losing i started losing some initial people but they still make it through intact getting ready to head through the sierra nevada mountains one guy went ahead, past the mountains, hit the fort on the other side, brought back supplies for them, and then they kind of got the confidence, okay, I think we can now make it through the mountains before the snow hits. So the video kept making a big deal about how the Hastings cutoff was the worst thing ever. And my thought was like, well, they kind of made it through. Yeah, it sucked, and you shouldn't go that way. So I guess was the biggest problem the delay? And the whole idea is that when they leave Fort Bridger, they're like, we're going to make it past the Sierra, Mount- Sierra Nevada mountains before winter, and so we'll be fine. And because the Hastings Pass delayed them so much, that's what forced them to be in the mountains during the winter? I, th- I think that's correct, yeah. Yeah, okay. And, you know, I guess you didn't just have a good place to... You could say, like, well, we should, why don't we retreat back off the mountains, or why don't we wait? It's like, well, then you're going to... I guess you could wait on the east side of the mountains... And you're not going to necessarily die in the winter, but you're still going to have to figure out a place to hunt. And of course, you just came out of Utah with the salt desert. Like, you're, there's no food. Right. So yeah. you kind of have to get through because you're running out of supplies. And so, yes, that's what leads to all the issues. So they kind of, actually, even before the guy had kind of resupplied them from, it was uh, Sutter's Fort, kind of in modern Sacramento, that the guy did make it to and then took supplies back to them. So they're kind of hoping to get to that. Anyway, before they were resupplied from that guy, they had already kind of splintered off, like getting pissed at each other, and kind of just became all these families splintered, splintered off into every group for themselves, kind of just 
you know, some might make it, some might not, some just die. And then, yes, famously, uh, a group, including, including the Donners themselves, uh, do do resort to cannibalism and uh, kind of make it through. Talk, talks of some guys ended up, you know, you, you murder the weakest one or you murder the native guys because they're not going to get, no one's going to get as pissed if you eat a native versus eating a white person and, right. and all these kinds of things. And so like, no, no real prosecutions came from it, but people were definitely, the ones that survived were kind of tarnished, their reputations tarnished for the rest of their lives and all that. And anyway, so Charlie Chaplin, hearing stories of the Donner Party, were what kind of inspired inspired this. And again, it's just crazy to think that like this movie's set just less than 30 years before it's made. Yeah. It's like making a movie about the 90s today is what him right. making The Gold Rush was. Yeah. Which, that's crazy. And there's also another connection to the Donner Party. Um, so their cabin, the infamous spot where they eight people <laughs> was near a lake called Truckee Lake, which is in Truckee, California. Now it's called Donner Lake. Mm. But the town of Truckee is where originally the gold rush was going to be shot. They actually tried to shoot a bunch of scenes on location in Truckee, but then they ended up not using a lot of that footage. I think the only the only footage that's actually in the movie that was shot on location in Truckee is the opening scene. But then the the rest of it was just shot on sound stages. Well, not even sound stages, just regular stages, I guess, in that time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but shot on a at a studio, not uh, not on location. But it so the the opening kind of shots of the movie where they're walking through the snow that is in Truckee, California. Oh, huh. Oh, and then my other note here was uh, so in theory too, when the Donner Party was struggling, the one guy that went ahead and made it to the fort. You could see a scenario where, like, oh, well, the soldiers of the fort can just go back and try to help and find people and rescue them and make sure, you know, take them food, whatever you need to do there. Oh, but the Spanish, or sorry, the Mexican American War had just started. So the soldiers had all left the fort to go help fight instead. And so there wasn't anybody to go and help the Donner Party. So it was just kind of this perfect storm of bad information and bad timing. And I think the snow. Like it, it, they were, they were already, they were delayed, which was bad. But also, the snow came early and was heavier than usual. So it was like an earlier right. snowfall and a worse snowfall. And like you, you talked about there, they had just come through the Salt Lake Desert. They had lost, a, they lost right. wagons, they right. lost animals, and so it's, it's easy to look back and say, oh well, that was kind of a dumb decision that you made. But it's like, but the, I mean, think of the desperation. Like you just came through a desert. You've already been on this trail for months. You're pot committed. Someone says, hey, I can make your trip shorter. And it's like, man, that's got to be right. that's got to be a really enticing prospect. Well, so the well, the, the the Hastings cutoff was what went through Utah and caused those problems. So like the Sierra. The, oh, OK. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the Sierra Nevada thing where they all had to start eating each other. That was kind of the normal route. The problem is you're supposed to go through that route, not in the winter. <laughs> right. Right. Oh, and then my other note, just again on with the history of Alaska and Native American treatment, and just how horrible it always is. So we we won't necessarily get to Alaska statehood. That's not till the 1950s. So the Native population from the time the Russians kind of first not discovered, but the Russians first got involved with Alaska up through when the Russians sold the U.S. sold Alaska to the U.S. So that 100 110 years, uh, the Native population was cut in half from like 100,000 to about 50,000. And then once Alaska was purchased by the United States, 
the U.S. didn't declare the natives to be actual U.S. citizens until 1924. So what's that, 60 years? Yeah. That they weren't actually considered U.S. citizens, even though that's a U.S. territory now. And then even until World War II, you would have businesses in Alaska that straight up would say, like, signs on the front, no natives allowed. Jeez. So, like, you could just straight up say, they can't even come to your shop and buy anything. Just, like, stay away. Like, it just, and that's through the 40s. It's just crazy, the continued ill treatment. That was actually, that was something that I had in my, had in my notes about the gold rush itself that I forgot to mention. Oh, yeah, good. It, just briefly about the, the natives during the gold rush. So, it was kind of a two-sided thing. So, there were a bunch of natives that actually profited off the gold rush because they could sell food and supplies to these prospectors, many of whom were ill-prepared to deal with a winter in the Yukon. But then at the same time, because there was gold in the region, there was also a lot of native removal by the government of Canada, kind of like, I right, get out of the way, get out of the way, we gotta, we gotta get this gold, like, go somewhere else. Right. And then... Dog sleds. I I think we do see a dog sled briefly in the film. Maybe they don't spend a lot of time with with the dogs, but I was thinking the dog sleds do make a cameo or an appearance in in the film. But that's something that I feel like because of the Iditarod and the modern version of sled dogs in Alaska and like just that image of it, it's just easy to forget the obvious thing that uh huh they use them out of necessity during the gold rush and during this time because like. Horses wouldn't work, and right. they were better at people. If you get a bunch of sled dogs, you could actually pull all your stuff and have the dogs do it. And right. they they were you know they bred you know these these huskies and malamutes or whatever that were winter resistant and just right. They're better at running on snow because they have like the wider paws. Yes, yes. Yeah. And the natives were using them, and then the people with the gold rush were using them. And that just just the idea that. Dog sledding wasn't invented so you could race sled dogs in Alaska. Like, they were a practical, necessary part of survival in Alaska. And I know that should be obvious, but it, like, it's just one of those things that hadn't occurred to me until my trip. And you hear these stories of like, oh, okay. <laughs> you actually had to have sled dogs or you couldn't do so many of these other things that were necessary for survival. So um, it was just kind of neat talking about the relationships between people and their dogs did you ever see the movie togo no i don't think it's so. uh maybe we should actually do it it's a true story <laughs> okay of a guy with a sled dog it's set in the winter of 1925 so you you know the story of balto i don't think so i'm pulling up togo it says well it looks like well william defoe with a good rating on, oh it's huh i, I don't yeah, know yeah it's, it's a disney movie it's like a 93 slash 95 on rotten tomatoes and it's just from a few years ago yeah yeah, it came out in 2019. Okay. Uh, it's it's at, coincidentally it's my dog's favorite movie. Normally when we're watching movies, <laughs> normally when we're watching movies, my dog is not interested at all. She's like, you know, just doing her own thing, doesn't really care. The two times that we've watched Togo, she literally sits on the floor and stares at the TV for the entire movie. <laughs> Of course, then I remember when we were watching uh, Ghost in the Darkness at your place, she was trying to find the lions. Yeah, yeah. But normally, like, that's, it's like if she hears an animal sound, she'll try and find the animal, and then she's like, oh, okay, there's no animal, I'm not interested. She gotcha. will watch the entire movie of Togo. <laughs> that's hilarious. But anyway, that's, that, the whole movie is about a guy with his dog and a dog sled, and they're making, they have to make a run for a vaccine for okay. something. 
it's similar to Balto, but apparently it's like I forget the the relation to Balto. It was like the yeah 1925 serum run to Gnome huh. called the Great the Great Race of Mercy or the Serum Run. Oh, it was a diphtheria antitoxin, and the only way to get there was by dog sled. And so this guy is running this diphtheria medication to Gnome because there was an epidemic going on. Huh. But the movie's really really good. We we should consider putting it on putting it on the list. Yeah. Um so yeah, so there's there's the brief look behind the scenes if you kind of see how how our list evolves and we kind of uh hit our ideas here. <laughs> and so I'll kind of use that to segue. So we've just set up our Patreon. If you go to patreon.com/historyandfilm, you can subscribe now to our Patreon and what we're going to start doing is we like to go on all our little side notes. We're going to start throwing some of them over there. Um, I did already post for free us talking about our our ranking of Christopher Nolan's films when we talked about The Prestige. That's up there for free. Um, I'm going to start putting other stuff uh, behind the paywall. We're just trying to basically get enough money to kind of cover our hosting fees. We've been doing this for over six years now, and it would just be nice to kind of get those hosting fees covered uh, at least. So we kind of put up a, you know, a $5 a month thing up there. Anyway, sorry, you had some more stuff on the movie, I believe. Oh, okay, so something that we see in this movie a lot is Breaking of the Fourth Wall by Charlie Chaplin. That was apparently a relatively new thing. It had kind of been, it had been a thing in in novels, like in literary works, for a while, since about the 1700s, I think, was the first time that, okay. that people were using fourth wall, what we would consider four, fourth wall breaks, which, for anyone who is not familiar with that term, basically... When you think of the fourth wall is is the screen is where the camera is yeah <laughs> right it's where the camera is so if you think of a, a if you're looking into a room with a camera you can see the left wall the left wall the right wall and the back wall and then the fourth wall is where the camera is so breaking the fourth wall is when you have a character that looks directly into the camera basically right. acknowledges the fact that they are in a work of fiction or in a movie yes so that was a thing that was new to film because if you think about in a theater. That was never a thing. I mean, they they did it all the time, but it wasn't considered like an out of place thing. It, it was it was integral to the medium of being in a theater because the audience is standing right there. Yeah. Right. It's it's the whole thing of acknowledging like we are in a play. You know, this is a performance type thing. With movies, though, it wasn't initially right off the bat because when you think a lot of the films at this time um, or, or early films were just like it'd be a short little clip of something. So when they started to make narrative narrative films um, i think the first instance was in a 1918 movie called men who have made love to me <laughs> <laughs> the main character discusses love affairs directly into the camera um, and that's considered like the first fourth wall break in movies but this is only seven years after that and that's it's something that is popular in these uh silent films especially the comedic ones where you'll have you know they'll give a look to the camera Um, when some funny incident happens but yeah so that was something that i noticed in in here was charlie chaplin looking directly into the camera oh i haven't i wrote down charlie chaplin a lot much like buster keaton would have needed to be a strong guy to hold his core rigid in that scene where he's pretending to be like unconscious and frozen in the snow oh my gosh yes lays down outside of that guy's house and the guy goes and picks him up by the shoulder and his whole body comes up Right. And then the guy picks him up and is holding him under his arm by the waist. And he's staying plank stiff, like he's frozen solid. He is completely straight. Yeah, his his torso and his legs are both completely straight, 
like he's a frozen board. Right. I don't know if I could do that. Right. I, yeah, I don't think I yeah. could either. But yeah, just, that Charlie Chaplin would have had to have been a strong guy to be able to do that. Of course, I also wonder back then, or did they literally put a two by four like down his back, down his back pant leg? I mean, I don't know. I don't know because it's it's an unbroken shot no, where he true, goes and lays down. The guy comes out, picks him you're like right. you know, picks him up by the shoulders, and then kind of like props him up, grabs him by the waist, and walks back into the house. There's no cuts or anything. Yeah, you're right. That's crazy. So I think I think that was I think that was real. I think it was legit. Oh, in the New Year's scene, we see at the strike of midnight, somebody comes around and they pass out a bunch of sandwiches. And I just thought, oh, that's kind of interesting. Like, Ugh. it's not like a... And it, they, no one, like, says anything about it, but it's like, it's they all just kind of seem to know that, like, oh, yes, it's New Year's, we're eating sandwiches. And I, I looked it up, apparently, at the time of making the movie, but for sure at the time that it's set. It in the the early twentieth century and late nineteenth century would have been about the time that sandwiches were actually becoming popular uh, as a food in the United States. That was like a cool new treat. Oh, you made sandwiches? That's fancy, right? So <laughs> so bread was becoming a staple food in the American diet. It was you know becoming because of the industrial Re- industrial revolution. It was one of the things that you could make on an assembly line relatively cheaply and easily. So a lot of people were ha- were had easy access to bread, and so then you put stuff on it and put another piece of bread on it. It's a portable fast food snack. Right? Is this where yeah. we get the greatest thing since sliced bread? With everyone being so excited about how easy it is and convenient it is to have yeah. bread, it's like, oh man, it's the greatest thing since sliced bread in right. 1898. And so I wish at the New Year's scene they don't actually say what year it's turning. I guess our best educated guess would be it's turning 1898, right? Most likely. 98 or 99, yeah, one of those two, okay. probably, yeah. Right, because they're not making, if it was 1900, you think they'd be, be making a bigger deal, and they, that would definitely be posted up there with their Happy New Year sign. So I think it's got to be, yeah, 98 or 99. Um, so also in that in that New Year's scene, um, we hear the song Auld Lang Syne. Yes. Which I did just a little bit of extra research on, because just out of personal curiosity, I was like... It's Irish, right? Isn't it Gaelic? It's, uh, Scots. Scots. It's a Scots okay. language poem. I was like, why do we, why do we sing that song, Auld Lang Syne? Why does it sound like? Why do the the words sound the way they do? Like, what's up with that? Right. So it's a Scots language poem. It was written by a guy named Robert Burns in 1788. It was set to its tune in 1799. Oh wow, that's old. And it just because of the words of the song, basically in that Scots language, it's it's talking about like, you know remembering the good days that have passed and so that's why it became it was popular a popular new year's tradition in scotland and in uh, britain more generally and then throughout the 19th century as scots and brits moved and traveled throughout the world they took that with them and so that would have been um, a thing that you would have seen it, it not necessarily like a new phenomenon at that time but definitely a, a continuing trend that are yeah a yeah, continuing trend yeah, yeah as a uh, scot scotch and and uh british settlers would have been moving around especially in canada because it was still a well when did when did canada get its independence well they remember they're still commonwealth i like, I, <laughs> I mean i know they're okay, a, their point. own country but it's i think it's a softer break like or they didn't have the break that we had right yeah yeah, yeah. cuz they still have like the queen on their money yeah exactly yeah so yeah 
Auld Lang Syne. And then another another uh, musical thing in the scene, which this was a this was another funny one, one that actually made me like chuckle out loud to myself when he gets in the fight with the big guy at the dance hall. Oh yeah, and he gets something put over his head. Oh right, is it his hat? And he he like swings and hits the post the the giant pillar with his hand. Yeah, and like hurts himself. And the every like the guy's like laughing at him, and then the clock falls off the wall and knocks the and lands out. on his head, and he gets knocked out. And then by the time he gets the thing off, he's like thinks that he punched the guy out, and the song "Pomp and Circumstance" starts playing. That's the musical on the piano at the at that okay, point in yeah. the in the movie. It's the uh, most people probably know it as that song that they play at grad at high school graduations. <laughs> it was uh, written by a guy named Sir Ed- Sir Edward Elgar in 1901. So that's actually for him to have that song playing in his head before 1901 is actually anachronistic, <laughs> technically. Oh, huh. That's funny. <laughs> and it was it became really popular um, after that middle portion, the part that you know as the graduation part, um, was played at the coronation for King Edward the Seventh in 1902. Okay, okay. That's when it became popular. Is this kind of like, oh, this is a song that's like it evokes like victory or like a a really good big thing is happening and so that's why they played at graduations too huh oh so what how was your version so i watched it on hbo okay and they had a this was a definitely kind of redone version i think they said so basically instead of cutting to title cards of dialogue they straight up added the audio of, but it was charlie chaplin so it was like charlie chaplin I think they said maybe recorded in like the 1950s, the audio over the top. So it was the original film of the Gold Rush with no title cards, and they actually just had Chaplin speaking all the title cards throughout. Oh. So huh. I, and that's, that's not the version I watched before. I mean, that's part of what I was saying. It felt more modern. Maybe it was because of that. You watched the old title card version, though, I'm sure. I watched the old title card version, and it's the one, it's on YouTube. And not not like someone just uploaded it. It's actually like YouTube Official. movies, but for okay. but for free because it's but so it, old. Yeah, it's. I mean, you can find it anywhere or versions of it anywhere because it's in the public domain. No, right. And actually, if you go to the Wikipedia page for the Gold Rush, there is. If you scroll down to the plot section, you can. It's there. You can click on it and watch the whole oh, huh. hour plus long. No, and at first I was a little like annoyed, like how dare someone alter the gold rush? I'm like, but this is Charlie Chaplin doing it. And it wasn't necessarily all like the film was the film. It was just everything that they would have cut to on a dialogue card. Chaplin was speaking into the into the microphone. Huh? And I also I almost want to compare them side by side because I also feel like he actually added way more like voiceover narration and stuff like stuff that. Silent Films did a good job of just kind of the audience is going to figure most of this stuff out. Just show it to them. And he was probably adding way more than what was in the title cards. So it was almost even hard to call the version I was watching a silent film. Right. Which is weird. But again, because it was Chaplin himself, I was like, okay, this is fine. And uh, it was good. Uh, The old old Lang Syne thing. I don't actually know all the words. Like, I, you know, old acquaintances be forgotten, old things. I, I, if if people started singing it, I would be half a second behind. <laughs> they just put copying them because <laughs> I don't actually know the words. And I was thinking, so one of my favorite movies is when Harry met Sally, and they they sing it at the New Year's scene in that film. And so that's in the late '80s, and they also know the world's words. So I don't know if it's I've just 
never actually been in a place where it's actually happening on new you know what i'm saying like i've never been in a yeah. new year's party that actually has that happening and i just feel like maybe people don't even know the words anymore or it's more of a regional thing yeah i don't know i i always think of the scene in uh in it's a wonderful life which is not a new year's scene it's t- it's christmas but they sing old lang syne at the end oh, of that true movie. true right because it's still kind of that reflective kind of thing Right. Uh, another Alaska note here, and this is just kind of something from my trip, is uh, they called them roadhouses. So, and I, there's a couple still existent. So basically, and I forget when these were built, you know, probably, actually probably after the gold rush times in the early 19 aughts and teens and maybe even into the 20s. Basically, you had these series of roadhouses that were essentially, I guess, hotels and inns, but they were, you know, specifically for kind of travelers along the road that they would be needing to do for all of this stuff kind of happening. But again, this is more in mainland Alaska, so this isn't part of that Yukon uh, gold rush. But uh, they would build them all about a day's ride apart so that you could kind of get through. The next day, you'd stay at the next roadhouse and the next roadhouse. And they were kind of just these inns, and, uh, but very much an Alaska thing. And it was I kind of you know went in one that was still, uh, still around. It, I, I don't know. I guess I don't have much on that other than it was just an interesting thing to see these series of roadhouses very specifically along the path for people struggling to get, you know, from one part of Alaska to another, which I guess is, I feel like, well, that's what all ends back were in like medieval Europe. But the fact that these are only like a hundred years old in Alaska and we still have a couple feels a little different, I guess. It's also a really fun turn your brain off movie with Patrick Swayze. I hated that movie so much. You don't like Roadhouse? Hated it. Hated it. Oh my gosh. Get out of here, Rich. I saw it one time in college. I'm like, this is hot garbage. What is it on Rotten Tomatoes? Oh, I don't know, but who gives a shit? It's a okay. fun movie. I do feel like it's actually way higher than I would give it. Like it's I don't think it's It's actually... a 41% okay. 66 okay. audience score. Okay. That's about right. I thought it was trash. And that was that was even back I don't feel like my taste was refined when I was I was probably like 19 or 20 and there's probably a lot of crap movies I liked back then. And I even then hated Roadhouse. No, you're just being pretentious. It's a fun movie. <laughs> I thought it was bad. Anyway, <laughs> no interest in me watching it either. <laughs> oh, I, I did have one one more little historical nugget. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So at the very end of the movie, he is getting on a ship um, after he's made his, his millions. And he goes to... They want to take a photo of him in his prospector outfit oh yes i love that and so he puts on his prospector outfit at the same time like not connected to his storyline at all but at the same time they're looking for a stowaway the crew is looking for a stowaway right the girl who just happens to be on the ship sees him thinks oh he's got to be the stowaway because i i know this dude doesn't have any money because he (laughs) flat broke when i knew him back in the yukon and so she like tries to hide him but the crew sees her trying to hide him and they're like kind of you're like roughing him up a little bit and then the photography guy comes out he's like no this is a this is a the uh, he's the prospector the multi-millionaire and they're like oh sorry sir sorry sorry she had volunteered to pay for his ticket and everything before that revelation came right yeah yeah yeah. which is her knowing she's gonna vouch for him even if he's poor yeah right so they they that's like their their whole you know connection he realizes that she's into him you know, she knows that he's into her, obviously, from earlier right. in the story. So it's like, oh, okay, now they're now they're connected. You know, they've kindled their love or whatever. And then they go up to the to the top of the stairs to take a photo to actually take the photo because the the photo the photo was going to be like towards the front of the ship, 
Yes. And there were stairs right behind him, and that's how they—that's how he ended up with the girl in the first he place. Falls, the guy right. said, "Hey, move back, move back." You know, I, I can't. You know, the framing isn't right. Move back, and he's like walking backwards, and then falls backwards down the steps. Right, right. So they go back up to the top of the steps. They're going to take the photo, and the photographer tells them to hold still, and they kind of look at each other, and then they start kissing, and the and the photographer gets like upset. He's like, "Oh, you're going to ruin the photo." And that's because at the time... You can't move at all. The, exactly. The way that you took a photo was you would open the shutter. It would have a really, really long exposure time like on minute. that plate yeah. at the back of the at the camera. And you couldn't move. Otherwise, it would look, you know, all blurry and weird. And then they would shut the shutter and then go develop the photo. And so you couldn't move any time that, that they were taking a photo. And that's actually... This is kind of a little side note thing, but... One of the reasons why, when you look at old photos, everyone has very serious-looking, solemn faces is not because they weren't happy. It was because you can't move. So it's hard to keep a smile, you know, for right. and, and not move your face um, when you're smiling for a long amount of time without looking like a weirdo. And so a lot of times it would just, it was just very, you know, you would just keep, hold a straight face and try and keep your face as you know, still as possible during that long exposure time. So yeah, that's one of the reasons why photos from the late 19th and early 20th centuries, everyone looks all like down <laughs> and depressed is because they have to keep their face perfectly still. Right. And, so, and sometimes the eyes almost look like ghost eyes or something. It's like, it's, yeah. yeah, it just, yeah. yeah. I'm surprised they're not blurrier with all, with all, all of that. Or like you still see photos with kids that are fairly crisp. So Maybe it's not. Maybe it was not a minute. Maybe it was like ten seconds. But still, like it just—it's something right. that uh, it was. It was definitely, definitely different. We're gonna actually now. So we're gonna talk a little bit about Call of the Wild and Jack London. Just like a little side note to why we've been talking about it today. But we are gonna throw that over on our Patreon and kind of end this episode here uh, on your podcast provider. So this is all kind of new to us. Give us some feedback as far as if this, how this works, or if you're having issues getting on over there, or um, how all the apps work. We're still kind of learning on the Patreon side of things, too. But yeah, so next time on here on a regular feed, very excited. We are going to get to Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, and check out Patreon for a little more side notes on the Gold Rush, and we'll try to do a little something there each time, each time too, to kind of give you almost a little bonus behind the scenes to all the stuff we're doing over here. So... Thanks for listening and catch you later.